0: Hello and welcome to The Great Books Podcast. Today we'll talk about Deliverance by James Dickey. I'm your host, John J. Miller of National Review, and you're listening to a production of National Review. Our guest is Kat Bab-Magira author of Poe for Your Problems, Uncommon Advice from History's Least Likely Self-Help Guru, as well as the Substack newsletter, Poe Can Save Your Life. She has podcasted with us previously on Edgar Allan Poe, plus Kingsley Amos and James Hilton, and she joins us by Skype as we record from Hillsdale College's campus radio station, WRFH in Michigan. Kat, welcome back to The Great Books Podcast.
1: Thrilled to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Why is Deliverance by James Dickey a great book?
1: It's been over 50 years since Deliverance first came out in 1970, and it still has no equal. This is a book that makes you feel something in the most literal way. I can't think of another novel that reads in such a visceral way that makes you sweat and hyperventilate alongside the characters. The writing is so muscular, so exact, that it's a distinct experience onto itself. So the prose style is something to come for. Likewise, I can think of very few other novels of this length that have as many facets and possible readings. All at once, Deliverance is a survival tale, an adventure story, a Southern Gothic tale, the great American novel, and a town and gown horror story about the rural urban divide. And at the same time as that Deliverance packs in so many possible readings in such a distinct flavor, it's incredibly subtle and ambiguous and nuanced. Dickie portrays the deliverance of the title as an ambiguous good, and for you and I, maybe we think about deliverance in the dictionary sense of salvation and liberation, and we think of those things as necessarily positive and desirable, whereas I think Dickie is saying something much more nuanced. Maybe that achieving liberation can cause us to see things that we would never want to see. For instance, how the natural world is indifferent to our survival, and how men can and do brutalize other men. And that's an interesting point about the book in that this is an incredibly masculine book. And Dickey was a guy who could be bombastic a lot of the time, but it's not a bombastic treatment of masculinity, even though it sometimes has that reputation. I don't think Dickey is being uncritical of typical masculine tropes. It's an examination of survivalist fantasies and these typical fantasies of being tested and pitted against the elements in your fellow man. And at the same time, it's not at all sneering. Dickie understands why we have these longings to break out of our lives, our normal everyday lives. And he understands the incredibly dark but necessary knowledge that can follow from those experiences. I think for all these reasons, deliverance stays in your mind. Whether you have read the book or seen the movie or both, this is a story that sticks to your ribs, And I think that's a very important mark of greatness. You know, if we ask great books to change us, to expand our vision, then deliverance delivers on that front. It's been 20 years since I first read it, and I can remember how the book felt in my hands and how the page was laid out in the typeface. Uh, Finally, I think Deliverance is great because it takes us closer to James Dickey, the man. He's a writer who himself embodied a lot of these contradictions that we've just covered, and whose biography and personal conduct say so much about the mythos of the South. And Deliverance is also great because it changed the world in a very literal way, and it takes a lot for a novel to do that. As I understand, many people in rural northwest Georgia objected to being characterized as hillbillies and rapists and murderers. Um, And yet the book and the movie directly contributed to a now thriving tourism industry in this region. It's all based on river rafting. And again, that's not necessarily an unambiguous good. Maybe we don't like how we got there, but it's a very distinct development and change. And this is something that Deliverance can be credited with.
0: We're going to talk about all of that, starting with the most infamous canoe trip in American literary history, <laughs> the characters, the story, the title and its meaning, the movie that is so famous on its own and more. But Kat, let's just begin with the simple fact that Deliverance, the novel, is essentially the story of four middle-aged men from suburban Atlanta who mm-hmm. want to go on a canoe trip for a few days in September? What could go wrong?
1: <laughs> right. I mean, why not go canoeing with very limited experience and no real knowledge of the area or the landscape, with only one member of the party being fit?
0: So, who are these guys? There are four of them: Ed Gentry, Bobby Tripp, Drew Ballinger, Lewis Medlock. We'll we'll touch on each of them in turn, I suppose. But but tell us about this group of. Guys, how do they know each other? How do they get together? What are they up to?
1: Ed is the narrator of the novel. He's an art director at a small ad agency and he's pretty content with his life. He's married with a child. Uh, then he looks up to Lewis Medlock, who's the sort of alpha male of the group. Uh, Lewis is a survivalist who enjoys extreme sports, kind of a weekend warrior type. His job is being a landlord, but he seeks fulfillment through these sort of feats of physical daring. And he has trained Ed in how to shoot with a bow and arrow. Then the other two men, Drew is a contented family man who works uh, for a soda company and sincerely believes in his job and is kind of leading a quiet life and, of, you know, a moral observance. And then Bobby is sort of a happy-go-lucky type, a country clubber, he sells insurance, and he's sort of like slapping guys on the back all the time.
0: And they go off on this canoe trip. It's in Northwest Georgia, as you mentioned. A, A real place, but some of the place names are fictionalized. Why should we worry about them? It's just a canoe trip down a river. Why is that hazardous?
1: Well, at the time in the novel, Lewis points out that no one has really properly mapped this region. There are no accounts of anyone rafting down this section of the river. The reason they're drawn to it at this particular moment is because the river is about to be dammed and a a hydroelectric plant built there. So this is essentially the last chance to go see this unexplored region of Georgia.
0: Kat, I want to bring up the movie now, partly because it's so well-known. And many of our listeners will have seen the film. They will know less about the novel, I'm guessing. Our impressions of the film probably shape what we think of the novel. Uh, it's also worth mentioning, this is probably the only time in the Great Books podcast I'm going to be able to say the name Burt Reynolds, because <laughs> Burt, Burt, Burt Reynolds is is the star of the film, and he plays Lewis Medlock, the outdoorsman, the survivalist that you just mentioned. But the film came out in 1972. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and its reputation.
1: Dickie was involved in the sense that he wrote the initial drafts of the script. He was extremely excited about the movie. He loved film. A English director, John Borman, came and they shot it on location in northwest Georgia with this cast, which as well known as these actors are now, John Boyd, Ned Beatty. uh, At the time, everyone was essentially an unknown. Uh, Burt Reynolds was coming off playing a detective on a forgotten TV show. And he was a guy who also loved these kind of physical feats. So the actors did a lot of their stunts and the film actually did. Uh, Show them going down the river without safety equipment when John Voight climbs the cliff in the movie He was doing that freehand not using a stunt double Needless to say uh, everyone did get injured in the process of it and it was incredibly dangerous at moments Uh, Dickie's son says in his memoir that he thought because of the subject And the material that they were working off of that the actors were drawn to proving themselves physically But in any case, you're right. It became a very famous film. It made all the actors famous. It was nominated for at least three Academy Awards, though it did not win. And it's considered one of the greatest films of all time. Now, I can remember Conan O'Brien did a segment on it not too long ago with Burt Reynolds as a guest. And Burt Reynolds said that oftentimes when he shows up a place, people tell him to squeal like a pig or other such lines from the movie.
0: The novel Deliverance was published in 1970. The movie came out very quickly after 1972. And I want to get back to the novel, but I got to ask a couple more questions about the movie. It's got two really well-known scenes. One just famous generally. The other... Infamous, and you've just alluded to it. And I want to ask about the first one first, which is there's a dueling banjos scene, which you have to hear to to appreciate, I suppose, as well as as well as see. Why is that so? Sort of well known? Is it also in the novel?
1: There's a similar scene in the novel, but it's considerably considerably elaborated in the film. In the film, you see Drew's character and a local boy. Once this is once they have gotten to the river. They're about to go, but they're in the last tiny little town and they run into this young boy with a sort of inbred or developmentally challenged look. And out of nowhere, he begins playing banjo against Ed and they play for a a five minute scene, an incredibly uh, incredible feat of musical performance. uh, Now justifiably famous. The song had been around for a while, I want to say since the 40s but Deliverance made it famous. And of course, there's a lot of YouTube commentary about this now. It's a distinct memory for a number of people.
0: And then there's the other scene, the notorious one. It's a controversial scene of sodomy. It's in the movie. This is after the characters have embarked upon their canoe trip. It's a scene of of sexual violence it includes the line squeal like a pig, at least it does in the movie. And this is where we get a really grim picture of what these four guys from suburban Atlanta find themselves up against when they, when they launch off into the wilderness.
1: Oh, that's true. And I'll say I saw the movie once 20 years ago and that was enough. (laughs) I have not rewatched it since because it's very difficult viewing in a way. Uh, Ned Beatty's character is raped when they encounter some locals after they've been rafting on the river for a day or so. Um, and then Ed's character is is threatened, too. And this leads to the ultimate violence, the murders that come. Um, that mo- line that has become so famous, Squeal Like a Pig, was apparently ad-libbed on the set. It wasn't in Dickie's script, and it's not in the novel uh, it has become notorious for quite understandable reasons. I want to say that the the scene is is beautifully acted. Ned Beatty couldn't have a done a better job. The kind of vulnerability that it takes to shoot something like that is something that I admire, even though I think we all can say it's it's pretty tough to take because it's just so it's so violent and and brutalizing.
0: And now we have unlocked the secret of deliverance in a certain sense that that at its heart is murder and rape and horror, really, what these guys encounter when they do go off into the wilderness. Why is this not just awful to read? Why is this literature? What is James Dickey saying to us? Why should we put up with it as readers?
1: That's a very important question because it's not as though I, I certainly don't consume literature about these topics containing scenes like this for pleasure, but it's dramatized in the book, which it, it's about if you are a victim of this kind of violence, man on man, can murder ever be justified? What happens when we take justice into our own hands? Is this a better moral code or a lesser one? Is It's using the scene and the act to ask incredibly huge questions about our existence, about moral life, which I think are worth asking and answering.
0: Early on in The Canoe Trip, Ed Gentry, our narrator, says of Lewis, he says, quote, he's going to turn this into something, I thought, a lesson, a moral, a life principle, a way. And that's with a capital W, which I should note, a way. It also puns the word away. At any rate, uh, what is the possible lesson or moral or life principle we uncover in deliverance?
1: Well, if you think about one of the most common logical fallacies there is, is that what is natural is what is good. Uh, we conflate naturalness with goodness. And Dicky I think, is arguing that we may not understand nature as much as we would hope to, and that once we do, we can be shocked by what we learn. And this raises a number of ethical questions about, you know, man's nature, too.
0: It has a kind of Lord of the Flies feel to it, I think, with this descent into savagery. Lord of the Flies is about boys, but this is about men and the question of, do they become monsters?
1: That's true, and I mean considering what they are hoping to get out of this weekend, which is just a little macho bonding, drink a little beer, hang out together, get away from, you know, their families for a weekend. And then what they actually encounter is something beyond what any person shopping at REI ever wants, you know, which is absolute uh, violence and being pitted uh, in a situation of, you know, kill or or be killed because eventually the, uh, the surviving hillbilly... <laughs> does try to murder the rest of the party. So they're forced to confront these questions beyond anything they would have desired, which I think can tell us something about, you know, we live in a day and age where in which survivalist fantasies are, if anything, more common. I mean, you have Wall Street Bros wear North Face vests every day of the week. There are stores like REI and Bass Pro and so on, and, and many people, you know, often perform and enjoy outdoor activities. Um, I mean, perform in the sense of they make it a part of their personality. So this weekend warrior vibe is still very much with us. And this is a story about the consequences of that and what we invite beyond what we think we're inviting.
0: To what extent is this a Southern novel? And I'll note that it takes place in Northwest Georgia on something called the Kahulawasee River, which is a, a, a fictionalized place name it's a, it's a great American place name or at least it could be the Kahulawsi River. but how is this a southern novel beyond its mere setting?
1: I think it's southern in its themes and the gothic dimensions of its story and its evocation of nature and animal consciousness to a distinct to a degree um, Dickey himself was a southern writer who explored these themes about as well as anybody did in the 20th century, which is saying something. The way it portrays the rural-urban divide, I think, is incredibly distinct to the southeast part of the country, Atlanta versus rural Georgia. I say this as someone who's from South Carolina, that even when you grow up there, it's all thought of as the South. It's not all the same place. Um, From the outside, it's often stereotyped as being you know, it, as having only a few traits, actually, it's got so many, and not all of them are desirable or easily resolved.
0: You used the word gothic a moment ago, and we think of gothic literature. What comes to mind, I suppose, is the novels of Anne Radcliffe and what what Jane Austen satirized in Northanger Abbey. And there's a kind of subgenre or an evolved genre called the Southern Gothic uh, literature. What is that? Mean,
1: I think, in as applies to deliverance, you're talking about an incredibly dramatic portrayal of a landscape that both reveals and creates the characters' actions and inner lives.
0: One of the problems the characters face after the horrible rape incident is what to do with a body because, because they kill one of the attackers, Uh, the other escapes, but they kill one of the attackers in this scene. And they face the question, what do you do with the body? Do you inform law enforcement, take it to them? Do you bury it and hope the whole thing goes away? And so on, that's an important scene in the story.
1: Yeah. As they see themselves at that moment, they know they came to this place, right? This region to do something that they had not really looked into before doing. Uh, So they know they're in over their heads, and yet they did not invite this violent encounter, which happens when, so they're in two different canoes, two men to a canoe, and Ed and Bobby decide to stop off on the shore for a little while. That's when they encounter these two hillbillies who, you know, they rape Bobby and they threaten Ed in the same way. Lewis and Drew come up and Lewis is able to murder one of the attackers, but the other one gets away. So they're stuck with the body of the one that's just died. And they debate among themselves uh, with Lewis saying, we need to take the law into our own hands and uh, settle this here. We don't want to disturb our lives back home, nor does, and Bobby pipes up to say that he doesn't want to talk about this experience that he's just had. And Drew was the member of the group who says, no, we we can't behave like that. It's going to make everything worse if we're not honest about this experience. We'll simply tell people what happened. Whereas others in the group are saying, do you think that this is a place that is going to listen to outsiders and sympathize with them? Or is it going to take the part of the locals? Which is in some ways a very understandable fear. So they ultimately decide to bury the body in the woods in an incredibly dramatic scene, but Dickie is not necessarily on either side of this. Like we're seeing the, the fact that there are four characters and they're debating. It's like, we're getting the whole scope of the argument where someone could say, you know, absolutely. You have to obey the law in all instances. Otherwise we're lost or, you know, people who, who could see the greater opportunity and the more important thing to be to contain this experience Uh, right there where it's happened in the woods, and that in this case, uh, murder could be justified because of the attack that the murder immediately preceded.
0: It's a pretty short book. My copy is less than 300 pages, and it really just zips along when you read it. But after that scene, there are more problems to come for these guys, more violence both on the river and off the river, do we find ourselves cheering for them? Are they, they're our protagonists, but are they, are they heroes? Do we like them? Do we want them to succeed in some fashion? What do we think of these guys?
1: That is a good question. I think it depends on the individual reader. I read it as just being transfixed, <laughs> you know, being gripped by this dilemma, the scenario. I want the, canoers to survive. Um, and I want better treatment for Bobby than he gets from the members of the own, of his own party. At the same time, you know, these are incredibly difficult questions like we're talking about. like After that initial murder, they continue down the river. The water gets even rougher. They find themselves deep in a gorge with cliffs 150 feet high on either side of them. So there's no way out of the river now. The water is getting choppier and choppier to the point that They're crashing their canoes, you know, their own survival is in question because of the river conditions, not just because of the murderous surviving hillbilly. Whether we would ever want to be in a situation like that ourselves, I think the answer for most of us is definitely no, but maybe I'm not enough of an adrenaline junkie to say.
0: No, Kat, I don't think you ever do want to be in a situation like that, although it's possible to imagine it or at least allow James Dickey to help you imagine the worst case scenario of what is supposed to be a pleasant or modestly challenging canoe trip. Let's turn now to the title. You mentioned it at the top of the show. Deliverance, a simple definition of deliverance is an act of rescue or salvation. It also has a kind of religious dimension, right? Mm -hmm. Prayers for deliverance, deliver us from evil, from the Lord's Prayer, and so on. What is this title doing? What is it supposed to make us think?
1: It's got multiple meanings that are all working at once. Early in the novel, Ed talks about, he's in a moment with his wife. I mean, he speaks of what's going on between them as uh, the promise of it that promised other things, another life, deliverance. So I think the most direct meaning of the title is probably, it's about these characters wanting an escape and a reprieve and an outlet from their suburban settled lives. And what they achieve is something much darker. And yet it's not a worthless experience. They have come through it. They've survived. They have proved things to themselves that they didn't know were true about themselves for better and for worse. So they have been delivered into a new life. But it's not, again, it's Dickie isn't kind of saying that this is a directly good thing. It's a horror. And at the same time, it's a proof of strength on a level that they didn't think they were going to reach.
0: But they've changed. They don't quite go back to who they were. They don't go back entirely to their normal lives, maybe maybe on the surface they do, maybe by some appearances they do. But they are changed men.
1: That's true. Once Ed is back uh, with his wife and young son, he sits by the window waiting for the police to show up. when they left the when they finally escaped the river. They left the region after speaking to the local police, and they lied to the local police about what had actually happened. They say that uh, Drew, who was shot and then drowned, they say that he merely drowned. Um, They say that their other injuries are attributable to the Rapids, and that's all that happened. They never encountered anyone. So these lies, they haunt him. The the things he's experienced haunt him where he's sitting, looking out of a window, expecting any moment for his life to just blow up.
0: The sheriff they encounter in the movie is portrayed by James Dickey, the author of the novel, the author of the screenplay. Tell us about James Dickey. This was his first novel, but he was a literary veteran at this point in his career in 1970. Who was this guy?
1: Dickey is a fascinating figure. Uh, one of the great poets and novelists of the 20th century, certainly from the South, but really of the US entirely, I would say. He uh, grew up in Atlanta in the 20s. And the, the thing to know about Dickey is that he did not often tell the truth about his own background. His own son said that Dickey was. Uh, interested in the creative possibilities of the lie. <laughs> and your Dickey biographies and, and memoirs about him, they're all, they have a debunking nature to them. For instance, Dickey often said that he grew up in rural poverty in Northwest Georgia. Actually, he grew up in a mansion in Buckhead, Atlanta, being driven to school by his shofar. <laughs> uh, so he often claimed a difficult, hard Scrabble background that he did not, in fact, have. He was from a very wealthy family that had made its money in patent medicine. In fact, 3S Tonic, which was the patent medicine, is still sold in Walmart in the South. Uh, so the fortune's still around. Uh, Dickey also was not a college football hero like he portrayed himself as. He, he did a walk-on season at Clemson, but he was not uh, the football hero that he often claimed to be. Likewise, um, you know, he was part of the generation that went through World War II, and in a way, he had a very distinguished record he was a radar operator who flew over 30 combat missions in the Pacific and encountered some pretty grim things. But what he told people was that he was a fighter pilot to the point where he wrote a poem that people can look up is called the fire which is about those experiences. But he portrays himself as a, as a pilot when he was not Dickey became in his thirties and forties. He was an ad man for Coca-Cola in New York and then Atlanta I find this part of his biography so encouraging. At night, he started working on his poetry and he published four books in rapid succession, the fourth of which, Buck Dancer's Choice, won the National Book Award. And he started to get humongous recognition as a poet. About his fam- He got as famous as a poet ever gets. He had an exclusive contract with The New Yorker. He was hired by the Library of Congress, and he did these barnstorming readings across the country at colleges and got an enormous response from audiences. Actually, his agent asked him to write this novel based on one of his poems about about a similar scenario, not nearly as dramatized or as built out. Uh, And he worked on it for years. His son talks about him working on it for the better part of a decade. And when it came out, it was a humongous success that, as successful as Dickey already was by this point, this made it all the more so. And in a way, this brought out Dickey's worst tendencies. A lot of people will know his reputation as an alcoholic, and he certainly was one for about 20 years after Deliverance came out. At this point, he was teaching at the University of South Carolina, where he became a legendary professor, uh, for better and for worse. And he was known as a great teacher, but he was also known as he ended up marrying one of his young students and his behavior around town is still spoken of to this day. My dad was a reporter in Columbia in the 70s. And he told me when I asked that Dickie's reputation was very eccentric and flamboyant, someone whom you could expect literally anything of. So a lot of his behavior was outrageous and honestly distasteful. And yet... It's, it's also true that he was a genius like for all his lies and his strange dissimulation about his actual background. Uh, his fiction and poetry are just, they're of surpassing beauty. They're incredible creative acts. I think, I mean, I, I would tell anybody to Google Dickie's poem, The Heaven of Animals. It will change your life. I think of that poem at least once a week and have for 20 years.
0: Kat, how did you discover this novel? I'll just say, for me, I I saw the movie uh, long ago, long before I even knew there was a novel behind it, I think. Did, did, Did you see the movie first, as so many people do? How did you discover this book?
1: Well, I was an English major at the University of South Carolina just a few years after Dickie died, so I never met him. But because it was a few years after he died and he'd been there so long and he was such a powerful presence... It was like he was still there in a sense, Uh, his spirit hovered over the waters, as it were. Uh, He'd been this larger than life figure and everyone you met had a story about him at the time. Like You talked to a USC librarian, she had a story. Uh, I talked to my godfather who had been with the Columbia Police Department for 40 years. He knew the cops who had arrested Dickie in 76 for drunk driving. Uh, So everyone had a story about him because he was so such a huge personality all this color, um, but I will also say that there was a very a serious component to him. Like what I, so I heard of his reputation. I heard all these stories. I eventually read Deliverance as an undergrad myself and was so gripped by it. I got into Dickie's poetry, which has, is now a lifelong love for me. I know this can sound corny, but it really felt at the time because he had been there that literary greatness was a possible thing. That was very exciting for, I mean, I had literary ambitions of my own at the time. And while maybe they haven't quite gone as far as I hoped they would, I'm very grateful for this experience. And he'd also brought around, I saw Pat Conroy on campus one morning. William Styron came to speak my freshman year. It was amazing to have this atmosphere. So that's how I encountered him. He was just such a huge local presence. Of course, the book is famous well beyond Columbia, South Carolina, and the movie as well. But I've also found that if you Google... Uh, memoirs about James Dickey, a number of people who were students of his at USC or or even came later had the same experience that I did, which is kind of reassuring.
0: What's the case for reading Deliverance now?
1: I think, if anything, it's more applicable now than it used to be. It's more true now than it used to be. It's saying something more urgent. I mean, I don't think that the rural-urban divide has gotten easier in American politics since 1970. I don't think that we are short of any survivalist fantasies in our own day, whether that takes the form of making an off-the-grid farm in West Virginia or the rural Arizona, or it's shopping at REI and constantly wearing hiking clothes if you're just going to the grocery store. You know, those are very common things nowadays. And I don't think we have any less longing to, you know, especially in suburbia, in midlife, to break out of routine and discover something more about ourselves and the world. Um, I think Dickie's reminder to us, and this is one thing that makes Deliverance extremely worth reading, is that it reminds you of what the consequences and risk can be, even when you don't see them ahead of time. I know as as the conversation got at moments, uh, I would just say this book is so worth reading. And I hope people read it and have that wonderful experience of walking around in someone else's head that only Dickey can give you this amazing prose about the natural world and the experience of these physical realities. It's so worthwhile, and I would encourage people to actually read the book and, and watch the movie, too, if they have the stomach for it.
0: Cat Bab Babmageera, thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about Deliverance by James Dickey.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's such a huge pleasure to talk about this book.
0: You've just listened to the Great Books Podcast, a production of national review. Please subscribe to the Great Books Podcast and leave reviews of the show. That helps us keep this podcast going. Send me your ideas for future episodes. You can reach me through our website at haymiller.com on Twitter. My handle is at haymiller. Last fall, special thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of The Great Books Podcast.